Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Poetry and Conversation with Sandra Beasley and Leslie Harrison. Our upcoming programs are um, the Poetry Contest. Uh, the deadline for that is March 1st. And February 9th, um, downstairs in the Children's Night Room, Lisa Couturier and John Geary and January 27th at University of Baltimore Wright Theater at 7 p.m., Karen Finley will talk about her book, Shock Treatment. After today's program, uh, please stay to purchase books and chat with the poets and sign up for our email list for information about coming poetry programs at the Pratt Library. And please um, take a minute to fill out an evaluation that helps library management uh, know uh, what you're looking for in um, poetry programming and um, programming in general here at the Pratt Library. Uh, generally tonight, uh, the program will be um, Leslie Harrison will read first, and then Sandra Beasley will read each, I think about 15 minutes each. Then we'll have a question and answer period, and after that, each poet will again read a few poems. Leslie Harrison is the author of Displacement, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt in 2009. She holds graduate degrees from John Hopkins University and the University of California, Irvine. Her poems have appeared in journals including Poetry, The New Republic, and The Kenyan Review. Harrison has held a scholarship and a fellowship at the Sawani Writers' Conference and a fellowship at the Breadloaf Writers' Conference. In 2011, she was awarded a fellowship in literature from the National Endowment for the Arts. She was the 2010 Philip Roth resident in poetry at Bucknell University and then a visiting assistant professor in poetry and creative nonfiction at Washington College. In the fall of 2012, she joined the full-time faculty at Towson University. In 2014, the Maryland State Arts Council awarded her an Individual Artist Award in Poetry. Yvonne Boland, in her foreword to Displacement, praised Harrison's zest for language and poetic voice. To readers who journey through the engaging poems and displacement, Harrison's zest for language lives through her daring metaphor and palette of words, musical with her companions and musical in meaning. One finds words one loves to say, mullioned and spalted, words of close observation that build the strong voice of the poems. A more everyday word, true, spreads into the canopy of the poems, as in all doors must be weathered off true. Boland wrote of Harrison's poetic voice, the one element that is not displaced, that plants its step and holds its ground, is poetic voice. It rings out, modulates, goes high and low, and convinces from start to finish. We are glad to welcome Leslie Harrison. Hey everybody, 
thank you for coming out on this chilly night. At least it's not Friday night. <laughs> when I think none of us would be here. Um, and probably none of us will be here. Um, I am going to start um, with a few poems from Displacement. Uh, and then I will read a couple of uh, newer poems. Um, I haven't told the Pratt yet, so it wasn't in my biography, but my second book was recently taken at the University of Akron, and so a lot of the newer poems will be from the second book, and there's even some from a tentative third book, which is sort of freaking me out. Um, uh, okay. So uh, when I was choosing poems, I thought, oh, this will be easy. I'll just re um, read every poem that has anything to do with Baltimore. Um, I'm not from here. I'm a military brat, uh, so I've moved something like 40, we'll say 47 times maybe. Um, I've lived in three countries and dozens of states and blah, blah, blah. But I did a lot of, I spent a lot of time um, up in New England. But I came down here for graduate school at Hopkins, and some of the poems in Displacement um, began in that moment, my first time living in Baltimore. And then when I came back, um, Displacement was already out, but somehow um, Baltimore, I feel like I won the job lottery when Towson offered me a job because um, I got to come back here to a city that it turned out I loved, although the only city I had ever loved in my entire life before that was London. Hardly anybody believes me when I say Baltimore and London. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to start with um, a poem called How It Started. At the point you start throwing pebbles at large bodies of water, you have suffered an error of judgment or scale. Marriage kept sending me back to the river, the edge of it, sometimes hemmed in shards of ice, sometimes rock. The water was cold and pushed at the shore. At the house, I kept setting the table, knives for the dominant hand, his grandmother's plates in the middle of everything. Despite the cold, the lack of encouragement, several leaves persisted on the box elder. In the attic, I found a mouse, spine snapped in a trap, flesh faded to a faint smell at the very edge of things, loosed from the broken bones of fine rice of white infant skulls. When he found the limp indigo bundle of a bird on his plate, I blamed the cat. When I told him about the mouse, he reset the trap. Displacement is a fairly unhappy book. It has to do with um, a failing relationship, and as you can tell, that was a little passive-aggressive poem to start us off. <laughs> uh, and here's another one. <laughs> This one I'm actually reading because I have the very great pleasure to read with Sandra Beasley, and some of you will know this and some of you will not, but Sandra is our best living practitioner of a 
a form called a sestina, which is a very intricate form. And I have failed to write dozens of sestinas. And the only way I ever got one sort of close to being a sestina was to make it a pentina, which is to say I lopped off a good one-sixth of the poem and made everything <laughs> five lines, and it worked better. And so this is that poem, and it has to do with uh, the first time I left Baltimore when I was heading north after graduate school. Um, it's called Farming the Moon. Driving north on 83, end of May, we are going home. Crammed full, weighed down with words, your truck creeps up the grades, hesitates. Tears push the grit of moving aside in streams the highway breeze turns dry. Migrating birds outline the wind. At home, unpacked, colder still in June, I keep finding a layer of dust from Baltimore that coats my books the way the city abrades my dreams. I cannot keep my balance. Gravity inverts, then seeps through ears and feet. A seesaw sun arcs through each day, gains weight as it eats the margins of July. The meteors that strike the moon break rocks to ever smaller bits. This powdered regolith forms lakes. Like Sperry Pond, they're deep enough to swim. It's August, and this is called farming the moon. Something in me is missing, and so I wait to see what swims ashore. On tape, Tom Waits shivers in the sea. I walk the granite hills, striking flakes like stars from stone, guided by the scars that sweep across the face of fall. It is September, a month the passing year brought back, the way asleep I dream a city trapped beneath the broken, glittering stone in the sky. Um, I seem to be on a roll as far as passive-aggressive poems go. Uh, this next one is called The Day Beauty Divorce Meaning, which in and of itself in a poem about divorce is hilarious to me. Um, you can guess whose beauty and whose meaning. Um, the Day Beauty Divorced Meaning. Their friends looked shocked, said, not possible, said, how sad. The trees carried on with their tree-ish lives, stately except when they shed their silly dandruff of birds. And the ocean did what oceans mostly do, suspended almost everything, dropped one small ship or two. The day beauty divorced meaning, someone picked a flower, a fight, a flight, someone got on a boat, a closet lost its suitcases, someone was snowed in, someone else on, the sun went down, and all it was, was night. I also write a lot about winter. Winter is my season. Um, winter is really my season. I'm so excited for this weekend, I can't even tell you. I was saying earlier I'd be more excited if it happened on Sunday because I start teaching again on Monday. <laughs> This one's called Lunar Eclipse, Baltimore. 
If you don't live in cities, and I have lived very rarely in cities, one of the things that shocks you is how bright it is at night in the city. Um, one of the things I miss the most now that I live here is the night sky. Um, but there was a lunar eclipse the first time I lived here. So this is lunar eclipse Baltimore. Not like a breaker trips all at once, a sudden plunge, but rather a more subtle theft. Words I'd written fallen from your mouth. Cities squander so much light that I sit reading in the garden, aglow with excess and the lucent pulse of moth wings. They ought to live longer here, no need for one annealing fire with the entire city ablaze. I'm as hollow as downtown. Shadows, freed from their objects, gather in the cryptic chainmail sky. The hammock moon, curved around absence, is recreated whole in Earth's dark wake, a month of vanishing compressed. Tonight, I will dream of you, this book, and this city, and sleep will transpose all of us into a different tense. I will wake to a sky emptied of the missing moon and the moths. I'm going to move on to some newer poems. The first one is called Stutter. Something happened. Um, if you read Displacement and then you read newer poems, you'll discover that I lost the ability to punctuate poems. <laughs> I really thought I had a head injury when it started happening. I'm not convinced I don't. Stutter. I said love because it came closest. Said leave because you did, we do this peeling off each from each, each from suddenly other, said come back, but meant don't go. I said dead and meant every one of those instances of vanishment, how the dead swim away from us in time, their tide, their closed wooden boats. I said tide, but tide was never right, said tide because we have no word for that kind of unforgiving away. I said tether when I meant anchor, when I meant stay. But when I said stay, one thing I meant was against confusion, against yet another loss. I meant two-faced Janus, January's god of fallen gates, of trying to look both ways. And when I said farewell, I meant again, don't go. But it was too late. I was here in the hall, this tunnel full of mirrors, glass, and strange made-up faces. And when I thought funhouse, I meant its opposite. I meant this rusty carnival town, the men so sad, they paint their smiles in place. They paint their faces white, paint their eyes wide and full of crying. When I lived up north, I lived in a very rural town. Um, and in December uh, one year, there was a terrible ice storm. And I lived in my house in the dark for nine days with no power and no heat. Um, and we lost about 100,000 trees. 
And this poem sort of addresses that. It's called December. And what I, uh, the amazing thing I noticed is that in the year after the storm, uh, the trees produced a ginormous amount of nuts. They were afraid they were dying. I mean, this is basically what happens. This is why we, we prune trees. You convince them that they're dying, they produce more offspring. Um, so the next year was incredibly prolific, and the added nuts and berries increased the number of birds, and um, it seemed very strange to me that so much good thing, so, so many good things could come out of so much harm. It wasn't fun, by the way. Nine days in the dark in the north when it gets cold and dark at three o'clock in the afternoon and you don't know what to do for the next five hours before bedtime or eight hours before bedtime. December. That was the year that ice begot ravens, singly in pairs and crows, a gathering flock fed well of the damaged trees, their desperate fruit, come to trouble what little sleep Come to comfort the stone-heavy days. Come to this house, locked in ice, the stacked snow sealed over so cold the owls died off from the branches. Such delicate flowers falling and falling silent, no call and no response. I think the bones of birds must trouble this earth more than most. Those hollow-bore needles fallen eventually white on white snow, and still the cold thickens, strange, slow, tidal sea, pierced above by a different falling, the Geminids, December's bright detritus going down in snowflake fire, as if awake could be a lovely thing, as if broken were just another glittering season, into which you bundle the children, into which you carry them to stare, to see a sky quiet and on fire in this winter of no more miracles, in this season of so much beauty, such harm. I'm going to read one more, and then I'm going to turn the stage over to my companion, Sandra. Um, okay. Hmm. Not that one. <laughs> the first book is about um, a disintegrating relationship. The second book is almost entirely about my mother's death, so it's sometimes hard to find happier poems. I don't know that this one is happy, but it's better than the one that I would drive to your grave, which is the one I said no to just now. This one's called Imagine. My goals today are modest. Attend the sky for signs of failing, falling, signs the buildings remain at ease, comfortable abutments guarding against so much endless space, their blank faces intentionally broken open in windows, such casual, such pretty risk. The blind wear sunglasses, darkness being one thing, exempt from multiplication, Objects in mirrors are often closer than they appear. What follows does so in ways both intimate and dangerous. Movie stars wear shades, windows without history, forgetting the arc lamp of the past, forgetting recognition, 
was never a matter for such tiny disguises. The sky all day, the sky keeps showing off, amusing itself with the usual bag of tricks. The city stands below, stands in shadow, somewhere small switches are thrown and the stars muscle their way into being, into being seen again, our ancient coming attractions a million years or more in the making and in the dying. In the dying night, we go out into the lighted dark. We go over the details. We make extensive notes, excuses, amends. We never needed to imagine the past, but still we do. Thank you. Thank you, Leslie. So displacement is in the back, and you should definitely check that out. Shailene is holding it up. Um, But for our next reader, um, we're going to hear from Sandra Beasley, recipient of the 2015 NEA Literature Fellowship, the Center for Book Arts Chapbook Prize, and two DCCAH Artist Fellowships. She writes in many forms. She's the author of the memoir, Don't Kill the Birthday Girl, Tales from an an Allergic Life, and poetry collections, I Was the Jukebox, winner of the Bernard Woman Poets Prize, and Theories of Falling, winner of the New Issues Poetry Prize. She's here tonight with her newest collection, Count the Waves, also in the back. Um, And when I think of Sandra Beasley's poems, I think of one of my favorite lines from the book. If some think me babbling, imagine how a game of chess appears to one who has only ever known a checkerboard. These poems make make truth claims, statements that reveal how the world works. She overturns assumed names and definitions, showing that words separate us more than space. She also inspects the insides of poems and relationships with lines like, you want to hold my hand, but not the blood within that hand. So I'm very excited that Sandra is going to come up here now. So please welcome Sandra Beasley. That's a really great introduction. That's one of those intros that makes you want to be like, oh, I'm going to read all these poems instead. Um, I'm really glad to be here and to be reading with Leslie, and uh, thank you so much to the Enoch Pratt Free Library staff, um, and particularly to Tracy, who's such a really good poet in her own right. She just read this past Sunday um, down in D.C. I figure since we opened up with a Baltimore poem, I should read a D.C. poem. Um, not that there will be a throwdown, I am outnumbered, and I'm a wuss in the cold, but, you know, I'll do what I can. Um, Those who've read uh, either I Was the Jukebox or Count the Waves would note a very high frequency of animals in my poems. And I 
the only thing that I'll say is that they really are literally the animals. It's not the metaphor. It's not the abstraction. It's that for a significant part of my time in D.C., I have lived within walking distance of a national zoo. And so where others might go to a park, um, I would walk through. One of the great things about the zoo is it's permeable. Uh, it's free. It's open fairly late, at least certain exhibits. And I would have things like quality peacock time. Um, and so I, I think that uh, I really closely associate the imagery of animals with the productive period of my life, which um, produced Count the Waves, which actually some of these poems reach back all the way to 2005. So I'll read the opening poem. Inner Flamingo. At night... My body discovers her secret geometries. Inner flamingo, knee hitch. Inner flamenco, arm arch. Hermes diagonal of flight across the mattress. The sleeping body is selfish. The sleeping body cannot lie. Once there was a man from whom I always woke huddled at the bed's edge. Then there was a man who laid his lust as a door knocker at the small of my back. The first time I laid down with you, sweat stuck each onion in the skin of the other. I assumed the unconscious hours would peel us free. Yet, when sun cracked its eye over the horizon, we were as we'd been. And the pink of me cocked her head, listening. So I feel like the poems in Count the Waves, in some ways it's the arc of a love story, but at the same time, it's it's not a happy ending, it's not a neat bow. It's saying, here's who I am, here's how I came to be here, can you love me in this state? Um, and some of, the, some of the poems draw from the well of the personal, but some of them are, are a little further outside, and I, I would feel remiss if I didn't read a Sestina. So I'm going to read one of a trio of what, what are known as the Valentines in this book. Um, and if you're not familiar with the Sestina form, it's not a big deal. Think of it as a kind of puzzling, like the Sudoku of the formal wor world, where you have six end words that you commit to in that first stanza. And your job is to reuse those six end words in a, a pre precise pattern. And so you're working within the flexibility of the word. Um, and often they take you nowhere that you intended when you first set out. So this is a dramatic monologue. Uh, the Emperor's Valentine. I admit the monkeys were overkill. They refused to leave their jeweled hats alone. They hurled the grapes at each other like small, hard promises of sex to come. With wild animals, there is always a small, hard promise of sex to come. Even turtles, shells scraping as they circle their turtle tank, for us, sharing a glass house would kill the spark. But they're exhibitionists. Hard to make blush, turtles. 
never bathed alone, using the same dish to drink. In the wild, my dear, I would ask only for the small favors, grooming you with my teeth, your small hands tugging my hair, gently as turtles tug mouthfuls of watercress from the wild. We can forget that to eat is to kill with chewing so elegant, but alone, thinking you're alone, I see you bite hard at the fatty bones of the chicken, hard at the apple's core, licking the dismal buttery bits from the knife. It's a lone wolf way to eat, Empress, and this turtle heart questions its shell. It's kill or be killed watching you chew. Yes, those monkeys were wild, but they were on to something. Being wild, refusing the butler, stomping the hard grapes to wine, even as guards came to kill them. To determine one's death is the small victory of caged beasts. Even the turtle in a cat's mouth can draw up, die alone. Surrounded by servants, I feel alone. The lions do not comfort me. The wild gazelles do not distract me. The turtles in their endless rutting seem small and hard, and your heart in its rut seems hard and small. Loosen your robes. Whether you kiss or kill your emperor, free him from this lone, hard bed. My room grows wild with vines big and small and turtles with nothing but time to kill. When I'm taking the Sistina into the high schools, I usually like do a pop quiz, and they try to figure out what the N-words were. <laughs> Raise your hands. Um, okay, so Tracy uh, quoted a, a couple of poems um, from a series called The Traveler's Vade Mecum. Um, and before I, before I read just a few from that series, I want to point out that, that Emperor's Valentine, I was working on that poem when I was at the Swanee Writers' Conference, which is where I first met Leslie. And I think one of the great pleasures of the poetry world, which is both very big and very small, is you meet people years before, and you keep crossing paths, and each time you learn just a little more about someone, and you get these moments then where you really get to know someone as a poet. Um, I was, and I was working on an essay about craft uh, last year, and I ended up getting to talk to Leslie for that, and it just made me appreciate how lucky we are to have people around us as poets and as friends. So this series, so love poems, yes, poems of travel, yes, but Threaded Through Count the Waves is this weird series that is in dialogue with a book that was written in 1853. And it was written by a guy named A.C. Baldwin, and it was a compendium of phrases. So it was a long list, 8,000 plus sentences and phrases. And the idea was that people would buy a copy, and you could then be in communication by telegram or letter with someone else who also had a copy of the book. So it was like a code book. So if you're paying by the character to send telegrams, you can take a whole page worth of information and boil it down to a few key numbers, right? So he called this book The Traveler's Vade Mecum, or Instantaneous Letter Writer by Mail or Telegraph for the Convenience of Persons Traveling on Business or for Pleasure and for Others, whereby a vast amount of time, labor, and trouble is saved. I'd be curious to know if it's in this library somewhere. 
Um, all of the poems in the series take their titles from the Traveler's Vade Mecum. They are not trying to create any one narrative, but every time, over and over, you hear the experience of people in motion toward each other and away from each other. So the Traveler's Vade Mecum, line 7,405, is actually from the original book. The offer will not be repeated. Two men walk on a path. One has a blade in his pocket. We do not know if the edge is grimed with paint or butter or is clean as a newborn tongue. One has an apple in his pocket. Put a horse at the end of the path and he is kind to animals. Leave the horse out and he is hungry. They can stop and sit together, knife-licking away the skin in perfect blush-red strips. One will look over his shoulder. One will fail an appointment he'd promised to keep. But they can have this meal if they choose. Then keep walking. One of the places that I spent a lot of time in... Uh, during some of the years writing this book, was Mississippi. So I had to think about sometimes the, fr the context in which words were used. In 1853, cotton was probably being uh, evoked as an image of commodity, but I couldn't help but think of those, those fields in the delta that I would drive past. The Traveler's Vade Mecum, line 2,239, cotton is rising. If hunting a lion, the weight of one's gaze will scare it off. So one must always close his eyes before hunting a lion. If he is to perform an inverse operation on the universe, the hunter must be sure to step inside the cage beforehand. The sky can have its Orion on this night he hovers with a girl in a field of astral spunk. Because he wants to be touched, he does not touch her. Because she wants to be caught, she will run. The Traveler's Vade Mecum, line 6,833. The people begin to understand the line joining two points on a curve defines a chord. Curves may be concave or convex, a gathering or a dispersion. You don't know until you know which side you stand on. Once, a man paid to put the two of us in a hot air balloon. We didn't know the words to the song, but we were trying to hum the chords anyway. We lifted above the earth, fields and farms raced below us. I wish he'd paid extra. For extra, they dropped the earth away as you stay where you are. And I'll share the, uh, the one that was um, quoted from. So I think uh, A.C. Baldwin had a, had a vision. He had a dream. Uh, this is the last one I'll read from the series, but you get a sense of his moxie. Um, the Traveler's Vade Mecum, line 8,206. 
What is the wholesale price of the traveler's vade mecum? I intend to converse with many, none in the same room. I have a daughter to search for, an acre of farmland to sell. I must confirm that flour is falling and copper is rising. I must offer my compliments to the ladies. I will be refusing all medical advice except for that of gentlemen known for punctuality. Where can I find you? In this city, this parish, in this gypsy market with dirt floors, if some think me babbling, imagine how a game of chess appears to one who has only ever known a checkerboard. I own one suit for going south and another for going under. I traveled before I was born and will travel after I die. They will come together, each clutching their copies, and raid my library. Beside, your love is reciprocated. They will find four tick marks. Beside, I am fond of loneliness. They will find fifteen A wrought iron gate makes beautiful not its bars, but the spaces between its bars. Without structure, there can be no mystery. Dear sirs, thank you for the service you have shaken down the Garden of Eden for its seeds. So that's the the Traveler's Vade Mecum series, which is threaded throughout. Um, But I think that you know, uh, those poems are, they're fun. Uh, they yield if you look at the Traveler's Body Mecum, and if you, um, but at the same time, I'd like to finish by reading a couple of more heart poems, um, poems that speak to that personal well that I was talking about. I'm going to read the last poem that I added to this book. It's called Grief Puppet. And, uh, Weirdly enough, I had hosted the biographer of Jim Henson the week before at the Arts Club of Washington, where I run events. So I think I had puppets on the brain. Um, but it was, I feel like when poets say this, you're never quite sure to believe them. This was one of those, I woke from a dream and this poem was waiting type moments. Grief Puppet. In the nearby plaza, musicians would often gather. The eternal flame was fueled by propane tank. An old man sold chive dumplings from a rolling cart while another grilled skewers of paprika beef. Male turtle doves would puff their breasts wooing and for a few coins we each bought an hour with the grief puppet. It had two eyes, enough teeth, a black tangle of something like hair or fur, a flexible spine that ran the length of your arm. Flick your wrist, and at the end of long rods, it raised its hands as if conducting the weather, tilt the other wrist, and it nodded. No effort was ever lost on its waiting face. It never needed a nap or was too hungry to think straight. You could have your conversation over and over past dusk when the old men doused their charcoal into rising day when they warmed their skillets. The puppet only asked, 
what we could answer. Some towns had their wall, others their well. We never gave the stupid thing a name, nor asked the name of the woman who took our coins. But later, we would all remember that dank felt and how the last of grief's flock lifted from our chests. Um, I'm really glad that the conversation will keep going over at this table. And again, I just want to thank you all for your attention. Ukulele. The vessel is simple. A rowboat among yachts. No one hides a Tommy gun in its case. No blues man runs over his uke in a whiskey rage. The last of the Hawaiian queens translated the name gift that came here, while Portuguese historians translate jumping flea, the way a player's fingers pick and fly. If you have a cigar box, it'll do. If you have fishing line, it'll sing. If there is to be one instrument of love, not love vanished or imagined, but love, it's this one. Fit a melody in the crook of your arm and strum. Thank you. Thank you, Sandra. So now we're going to have the Q&A. You can ask Leslie and Sandra all of your burning questions. And as a reminder, this event is podcasted. So one, you'll be famous, but two, speak into the mic. Question? First of all, thank you very much. You both did a very good job. Yesterday was the actual birthday of Edgar Allan Poe. He would have turned, I think, at least 200 and... Uh, nine years old, something to that fact. A little bit scary, but anyway. So my question is, some of the topics I heard tonight was a bit on the mysterious side. So I wanted to know, did, how much did you use much of Paul's ideas? Uh, I mean, something to carry for, you know, the macabre and all. And um, how does people look at Paul today from your perspective? Thank you. Well, first off, I was really delighted to be in this room, uh, in part because of a personal connection to Poe. I, uh, I attended University of Virginia, and I was, I was in a group called the Jefferson Literary and Debating Society. And although I don't believe he was officially elected an officer, Poe did uh, sit in as secretary to the society um, during his days as a student at the University of Virginia, before he bounced out for what people often refer to as likely gambling debts. Um, so I've always felt a personal connection to Poe, uh, and we would have recitation con contests. Uh, I don't know if he so much is apparent in my work on the page, but I do think of him as a reader. I, I, uh, reading Annabelle Lee and Poe's work is how I learned to sustain momentum and musicality in delivery. Um, I do think the darkness and, and maybe the use of animals, right? For me, it would be resonant. It's, I didn't have a raven, but I had a flamingo. And if you look at the book, I have a peacock too. Um, I think he's 
widely regarded. I think Poe is incredibly useful because he bridges the gap between what is sometimes unfairly dismissed as genre fiction and what is just finely wrought narrative with a heavy dose of suspense. Uh, And he did some wonderful essay writing. Actually, one of his most brilliant pieces is about furniture, the taxonomy of furniture. It's a nonfiction piece. Um, so I, I think he's he's widely still appreciated and, and spoken of, but like I said, I'm, I'm biased. I sat in the chair he sat in as secretary. So I think for me, um, I first encountered Poe in prose. I didn't know Annabelle Lee or The Raven when I was a kid, but he was the first stories that were so messed up. <laughs> It's so dark, and I was transfixed by them. And then I kind of um, left Poe for a long time, but moving back to Baltimore and teaching here, my students love Poe. They love Poe beyond all other poets. And I have talked to other professors, and they don't think it's just Baltimore. A lot of students really still respond to Poe. Um, So he's been much more present in my writing life than he had ever been since I was a little tiny kid and tried to duplicate the cask of Amontillado in very bad prose at age 12. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But also, this is an ongoing conversation with a lot of poets I know. It's very, very hard to write a happy poem and I seem to dwell in the other end. I'm very familiar and comfortable with Poe's sort of outlook on life. I go for the dark almost every time. When he based his on his own personal life, what would be the basis of your macabre? <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a line in a John Berryman poem where he, uh, his alter ego says, but nothing very bad happened to you lately. Um, And that's kind of where I'm at now, which is to say, you know, there is plenty in my own life that is um, dark and that I do write about. Um, Displacement, I think I said earlier, has to do with the end of uh, what I had thought at the beginning was the one great love of my life. And my second book is actually called The Book of Endings. So you can guess how that one's going to go. Um, we all have darkness and I think poets are a lot more comfortable peering into it than other people are yeah I mean I I think that I think for me the the catharsis that's often embedded in Poe's handling of melodrama or of, of kind of severe dark turns that interests me, but honestly, what interests me more at this point in looking at his work is his choices of diction and voice and where, you know, we can't assume that just because he wrote in a generation prior to ours that that was, that he's using elocution styles that were natural to that generation. Even then, he was using these incredibly heightened, um, he was making very specific choices in syntax and diction with his speakers and stuff. That really interests me because I, I think, as you might have heard when I was reading those Traveler's poems, I'm interested in choosing word types, choosing a level of formality to kind of create different levels of humor. Uh, And I think that often with Poe's handling of language, there was humor in his formality. 
that offset the darkness uh, in, on a content level? That's a very poet's poet answer. I apologize. <laughs> I promise to talk about flamingos next. <laughs> Anyone else? Uh, I, I enjoy both of you. Both of you, and, and you were both unique in your different perspectives. Um, and may, so may I do uh, two separate questions to aim their different ways, starting from the latter forward. <laughs> Sandra, um, your poems, um, I noticed you balance sexual innuendos and the way you balance it in your poems. Is that a general vehicle for you in, in your writing? I try to balance sexual innuendo in my daily life, yeah. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I mean, I think that... Uh, okay, so I wrote this book about food allergies. Um, it was a memoir. It's a nonfiction book. And one of the things that I had to really think about was I was describing states of the body that were not pretty, they were not sexy, they were often painful. Nobody really romanticizes hives. And yet I had to let the voice not be a series of episodic sufferings. I had to bring the voice alive on the page in a way where you were rooting for this young woman. Um, you were rooting for her body to be whole, even when it wanted to self-destruct. And so I... I grew, and, and frankly, like one of the driving narratives was often a romantic one. So I think very closely of sexuality and absurdity in the same spaces. And you hear in the Emperor's Valentine, on one hand, his desperation, and it's easy to make fun of that, but on the other hand, his longing that I hope in a way ultimately becomes poignant. So, I mean, I'm just mirroring real life in a way that I had to actually really think about for the first time when I wrote, when I wrote a memoir, when I wrote a nonfiction book. So, yeah. Thank you. Uh, second part of the question is the Baltimorean. Um, you captured a side of Baltimore really nice in, in describing some of, some of the subtleties that only I'm a Baltimorean <laughs> that you kind of get in Baltimore amongst the di the different sides of it. What do you often write about Baltimore? Is it un you said you was in 47 countries, so. Is it unlike all 46 others? <laughs> it is. So what happened for me was um, I had had another life before poetry, which is to say I loved poetry in college, but I was poor. Um, I spent a good part of my childhood on welfare, the child of a single parent. Um, I went to college, and I knew that I would have to get out of college and get a job immediately. I was graduating $20,000 in debt. Um, and so I did that. I had another life. And I did it for as long as I possibly could. And then when I couldn't not write anymore, you know, Robert Frost has this, this line about how do you know if you're a writer? And the answer is try to stop. And if you fail to stop, then you're a writer. And I failed to stop. And so then I started looking at graduate programs. And I got into Hopkins. And I came to Baltimore. And so part of my enduring love of Baltimore was simply how happy I was to have given into this terrible craving to write poems and to be on my own in this city where I had never lived before and to be able to wander around. I, one of my first outings in my first trip to Baltimore was here, to the Pratt, to hear poetry by Greg Williamson, who teaches at Hopkins, and Alan Grossman, who has since passed away but was one of the professors there. And afterward, we would wander around downtown, and it seemed deserted and strange because it was still very business-oriented. And 
Um, and so it was, in fact, I was happier here than I had been ever before in my life. And I think that still inheres to Baltimore. Baltimore was a place where I was happy. And so I was open to the city in all its strangeness and wonder. I think that's a really great place to stop the Q&A if no one has any other questions. Um, and we get a special treat with this additional context. Um, Leslie and Sandra are both going to close with one more poem, or two, however many. <laughs> um, but before we do that, I just want to remind everyone that if you like this event, please sign up for our mailing list so you hear about more. And um, please fill out a survey as well to let us know what you thought. Right. So take it away. One of the poems from Displacement. Um, it's called Inventory. Uh, for a while, I was really interested in in sort of non-poetic forms, um, like what an inventory is. Uh, and so I started writing strange list poems, which I found out was actually a thing after I started writing them. Uh, I wasn't very bright. Anyway, this is called Inventory. There is always a beloved. Sometimes there's a husband. The two were one so long ago that nobody remembers. One of them you slept with. Both are presumed lost. There are several landscapes, a city, four towns, one mountain, and every river that ever flowed. One of the landscapes is briefly California. All of the towns drowned before your birth. There are two seasons, winter and not winter. Pronouns are flex points in the narrative. Sometimes the you is any one of two others. Sometimes it is not exactly other. He is also changeable. I is sometimes I, but sometimes it's more prescient twin. The rules involve the number of people, places, pronouns, acquired but not held. When they are not full of stones, your pockets are empty. When you believe you are being most direct, you are mistaken. One of the twins has been known to lie, one writes some things down. You love best that which cannot love in return. The list, in love, the list of loves includes one of the landscapes, the city, and at least one of the men. There is always a beloved. Sometimes there is a husband. There has never been a home. Wow. Um, that was beautiful. Uh, so people often ask what I've been up to lately. And uh, for better or for worse, I needed a project that felt very different from Count the Waves. So I've been writing poems about food traditions for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And I got to go down uh, in October and actually down to Mississippi and read some of them. So they've, they've all appeared in a journal called Gravy, which is almost entirely off the radar of the poetry world. So it's, it's a weird experiment of writing furiously for what feels like an audience that has no echo in terms of your literary life. Um, and I'll just read, uh, I'll read two short poems um, 
one way of approaching the topic of food traditions is to do a kind of ex explanation of something that may seem very weird and obtuse to an outside viewer. Has anybody here ever had a goober rig? Okay, if you, has anybody here ever had a pop or cola in a glass bottle? Okay, so in some places you will see people who will pop the top off, take a few swigs, and they'll load it with uh, salted peanuts. That's called a goober rig. And there's a few different theories of why this would be appealing, that mix of cola and salt. Um, maybe the idea that if, you're, if you've got a working class job, you know, you might not have your hands free and clean to, to f eat like peanuts. You might not want to put those in your mouth straight from a dirty hand. But goober rigs, so the, the trick is to picture something like that, that, that glass bottle of cola um, filled with peanuts and try to figure out how did that come to be. Uh, and so I started with looking up the origin um, of the nickname for peanuts, goobers, and I was reminded that it comes from the, the African word nuba, nuba. Goober rig. Of course, of course, the nuba quivered underground in their legume shells waiting. Of course, the bottle straddled the dirt with contoured glass. Of course, it was a gusher. Rich cola swelling toward the neck, skyward, crested by peanuts and salt sweat. And of course, we opened our grateful mouths. Of course, we taught our children the new way and what at first seems an idiocy of syllables becomes the only creation story you need. Anybody here ever had a mullet? Mullet is a light-boned fish that uh, in certain places is served so commonly in all forms, fried, stripped, jerky, um, that it's uh, in one place referred to as a kind of bacon, Biloxi bacon. If Mark Chagall's father had hauled fish in Mississippi instead of Vitebsk, it would be mullet winging over rooftops, mullet on violin, rooster and mullet, mullet and goat. The painter Chagall saw the wonder of what sustains us, how one can scavenge the bottom and still rise without apology by the silvered dozen. In a chapel of mullet-pained glass, we would gather to watch each fish relay the baton of its body from wave to wave across a marathon of hunger. The body, fried, cradled in grits, the body smoked and lacquered in cane. When casting nets to the gulf, who are we to judge terms of grace? We save the gizzard, the star-white milt, that bridal row on our tongues bursts with the promise of mourning. Thank you. <laughs>